The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is Dr. C- Stephen Hupp, Ph.D., Professor of Clinical Child and School Psychology at Southern Illinois University, Edwardville. Dr. Hupp is also a licensed clinical psychologist and consultant for the East St. Louis Head Start Program. And the title of his new book is Great Myths of Child Development. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. Hupp. Thanks so much for having me. Well, as we were talking just earlier before we got onto the show, uh, there seems to be numerous, many, I don't know, maybe even hundreds of myths about childhood development. And as a mother of three, my audience knows this, I've I've raised three boys all in their 30s, so I'm looking at some of these myths and I'm thinking, whoa, I bought into some of them, but you know, some of them I didn't buy into. So uh, let's start with some of the most commonly held childhood development myths that you talk about in your book. Okay, great. Um, well, and, you know, I've held a lot of these myths, too, and even when we were working on the book, that's when I'd get uh, most excited is when I'd come across some idea that I've always believed, and then I'd look at the research and, and realize that I was wrong. Uh, and so one of the, the common examples that uh, we talk about in the book is this idea of the terrible twos, uh, that the two-year-old is a, a very a specific stage of child development where all two-year-olds are going to have behavior problems or, you know, significant behavior problems compared to other ages. Uh, like I used to say, my son was advanced because when he was only one, he'd already entered the terrible twos phase. But I've heard other people say the same thing for their three-year-old, four-year-old. And we looked at the research and found out that um, although we can have behavior problems at two years old, they're not any more likely at two as compared to one or three or four or even 40. So where did that come from, the terrible twos? You know, I studied developmental psychology when I got my undergraduate degree. And then as an MSW, I had a course in psychoanalytic psychoanalytic psychology. And we always learned that the terrible twos had to do with actually being able to, or the child trying to separate from their mother and or father or whoever is the primary care uh, person taking care of them. So, and you're saying like, well, you can, there can be the terrible ones, the terrible threes, but there are things that differentiate, differentiate developmentally twos from ones from threes, for instance, right? Yeah, and the thing is, uh, some new behavior problems can emerge at two years old, but a, a lot of uh, new great behaviors emerge at two years old as well. Uh, so kids start to become more independent and start to be able to do more pro-social acts, and so we might as well just call it the terrific twos, too. Uh, so that's part, partly a misnomer to label it as just like a negative time period. So you're saying put a positive spin on it instead of like coming into the twos with this kind of negative, terrible twos. Um, Maybe it plays itself out if that's what you if that's how you're defining your two year old right so it's better to to 
there's probably better, do you think that better behavior occurs in the child or the relationship between the child and the parent or, um, if you label it the, you know, the, what did you say, the positive twos, the happy Well, twos? I think it would be a mistake to label it either one way or the other. Uh, yeah. the, my point is that the, that the good behaviors emerge at two and problematic behaviors emerge at two, but the same thing could be said for one and three and four. And so there's nothing particularly unique about two that makes it particularly troublesome. Okay, give us an example, because I really want to, you know, I think people really learn by example, especially mm-hmm. if they're not in the field. So, okay, so what have we been labeling? What kind of behavior have we been labeling as the terrible twos as parents? Well, uh, one of the behaviors we focused on was, like, temper tantrums. Um, but other people uh, list all kinds of things, you know, just uh, unrolling the toilet paper, uh, you know, nonstop the whole roll or uh, dropping food <laughs> on the floor or, you, you know, you name it. Uh, probably parents can think of a hundred different examples with their own kids. But the research we were able to focus on was temper tantrums. Yeah, temper tantrums, I would say, I would call that a number one. I mean, in my experience of raising three boys, that's sort of like that temper tantrum they have when you take them to the grocery store or right. any place in public. Yeah. <laughs> and you're I mean, humiliated and your face is turning red and you're sweating and you've got to get out, you got to get out of there with the kid, right? Yeah, okay, well, so, usually when my kids have temper tantrums in public, one of the... Uh, one of my child psychology students from my college course is nearby, and they're like, oh, hey, Dr. Hop," <laughs> And I'm like, don't look at my children. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and by the way, I went on the website, and your students love you. I mean, I was looking at all the, the ratings you got from your students, like you're like a terrific teacher and you inspire them, so I wanted to kind of throw that in. Um, oh, that's nice. You went to rate yeah. my professor? Is that what you did? <laughs> that's funny. Thank you. Well, all right, so have we co- we haven't covered the terrible twos, but I think temper tantrum, that's a perfect example. Um, okay, but next. Oh, I know. The one that really struck me was now, and I, I actually didn't buy into it, you know, the whole thing about bed sharing. You mentioned that. Now, right. bed sharing, I, what did you say there was that the bed sharing is supposed, oh, bed sharing promotes attachment between children and parents. Now, true, not true, is that a myth? Yeah, we describe that as a myth. Uh, So bed sharing is one of the major components of the broader parenting approach of attachment parenting, uh, which is designed to just, you know, do these things to strengthen attachment. And um, the problem is there's really no research to show that bed sharing or the different components of attachment parenting strengthen attachment. And uh, we're also a little concerned about bed sharing because, the American Academy of Pediatrics cautions against it because it can be uh, dangerous for the baby. Yeah, see, that's the one that I think I just, in terms anecdotally, my own experience that I kind uh-huh. of challenged because they, when I was raising my kids in the 80s, they said, do not, bed sharing is not a good thing. Don't do that. That's, you need to be separate, the baby or the kid has to be in his own room and his own crib and his own bed. And I was so exhausted and I had three kids. I, sometimes I, we would all just get, you know, and they, I couldn't spend time trying to get them to sleep in their own bed so they would share the bed with, with me and my ex-husband. Maybe you're right. Anyway, <laughs> but, uh, um, but it didn't seem to have any harmful effect on them. It was, you know, a, a mother who is sleep deprived isn't a very good mom either. So I right, was, no, and you yeah. know, I'm, and we're not making the case that uh, the bed sharing is harmful in terms of relationship. Um, it's just if you're going to bed share with a baby, the risk is a physical risk, and so some babies have 
uh, suffocated in their parents' bed uh, because of bed sharing. So that didn't happen to you. So there, there was no harm uh, from the bed sharing in your case. Uh, but other people, if they're going to engage in bed sharing, particularly with babies, um, then they need to be very cautious and aware of the fact that it continues to go against the recommendation of pediatricians for safety reasons. That I do agree with you, and maybe I should have clarified it. I absolutely agree. When I was nursing the babies, I put the carriage beside the bed, but right. not till they were a lot bigger did I allow, you know, did I have them sleep in the bed. Yeah, because I would be terrified that I would roll over and squish, you know. and, and Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, yeah. okay. As so they, we have As they to... get older and older, it would be a safer thing to do. But then, as you said, less and less need for it as they get older and older. But, um, I mean, one nice thing about attachment parenting is it is designed to try and increase breastfeeding. Uh, which is good. It's good for the health of the baby. Uh, and so um, in that sense, it's good. But um, And I, honestly, I'm, I know babies have fallen asleep in our bed before too, uh, but uh, generally the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends room sharing for the first several months uh, where they're sleeping in a crib in the parent's room and maybe right beside the bed but not in the bed. Well, that's what I did. I guess then I did it perfectly, I guess. <laughs> Sounds like it. <laughs> so I don't have to feel guilty. So you can okay. call the kids up and tell them you did it just right. Exactly. I tell I my did kids it right. that every day. <laughs> uh, okay, now here's, I mean, this is a hot, you call it a, a hot button issue, and it is these, the childhood vaccine. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, I, I don't, I mean, public health versus choice in terms of what you're going to, how you're going to vaccinate your child. or So what is the, uh, what are the myths about childhood vaccines? Well, there, there's a, a bunch, I'm sure, out there. The one that we researched and focused on was this idea that uh, vaccines like the measles, mump, rubella, MMR vaccine, uh, some people have suggested that it causes autism. And uh, especially over the last 10 years with uh, a uh, notable doctor or two and celebrities like Jenny McCarthy continuing to say this. Uh, there have been tons of research studies and really big research studies with hundreds of thousands of kids comparing groups of kids that have had vaccines to groups of kids who haven't had the vaccines. And research is very clear that uh, kids are are no more likely to get autism if they have the vaccine. Yeah. But well, okay. they are... Yeah a lot more likely to get measles, mumps, or rubella uh, if they do not get the vaccine. And so it is a very uh, dangerous game to play to uh, not vaccinate a child. Yeah, and I think that this generation doesn't and hasn't, and how could they see this? But in my generation, we, we got, I had the mumps, the measles, the chicken pops, right. and two brothers, and and very serious. They were serious. I mean, it, I mean, and if you have, and I think if you have a child who's compromised in any other way, then you add that to the picture. You know, you can really have serious problems. So. Um, yeah, I'm 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 a pro vaccine person, but I think that's uh, I'm I'm glad you clarified that. What about okay? Well, let's go on to that. Can I also add though yeah. that I think you're right. Our the the current generation hasn't seen these things too much, although we're starting to get outbreaks now because people aren't vaccinating. And so we just recently had a measles outbreak. It uh, centered around Disneyland, uh, and it's because people are vaccinating less. So what happened in that outbreak? This when you say recent, very <clears throat> very recently. Oh, yeah, I was in the news just within the last month, uh, about 100 cases of measles traced back to uh, a child or a couple children at Disneyland who were not vaccinated. 
And uh, part of the problem is um, not everybody can get vaccinated. So little babies, uh, we don't vaccinate little babies. Usually we do the vaccinations when they're about one to two years old. And so part of everybody getting vaccinated who can get vaccinated is to protect those few people that aren't able to because they're too young or because they might have other health complications that make it hard to vaccinate them. Yeah, and I also, I had scars on my face that didn't go away for 20 years from scratching and getting mm-hmm. the measles, for instance. Right. Um, I mean, that's cosmetic, but still, it kind of, it's, it's indicative of how, you know, really how infected I was. And that, and that was pretty common amongst myself and my peers. But anyway, uh, yeah, so you want to be able to vaccinate as many kids as you can. And um, to, obviously, to prevent these outbreaks, what about timeouts? Now, I was never good at that, but my kids were never good at that either. So <laughs> <laughs> let's talk, because I see all these younger parents, you know, with the timeout, and maybe Johnny is having his tantrum, and then he has to have a timeout. How effective is that? Well, the message in our book is uh, not everybody has to use timeouts, but if you're going to use it, it's a reasonable option. Uh, because uh, there is quite a bit of research to show that it can be effective with a lot of kids. That's not to say it's going to be effective with every kid. Nothing probably is, but um, there's, uh, it's got a, some really well-designed research showing that, especially when we're talking about two years, between the terrible twos up to about <laughs> six years old, uh, that's the age range where it's particularly effective. But there are certain things one can do to make the timeout more effective or less effective. And so um, our book, we don't go a lot into how to do things. We go a lot more into how not to do things, but we point parents in resource uh, to other resources. Um, and uh, so they can find that in the book too. So how do you do a timeout with a two-year-old or a three-year-old? And does it have to be in a certain kind of uh, venue or environment, time out at home, time out in the groceries. I mean, how do you, you know, you, if a lot of the times their behavior, they're acting out in public, and how can you have a time out? And if you go back and have a time out at home, they can't even remember why they're having the time out from what, because it's been too long since they did whatever they did or had the tantrum. Yeah, with with littler kids, a, a timeout in a grocery store might not be the best option because the key of timeout is that you need to be able to ignore them for a, a period of time, and a grocery store is just not a good place to ignore a kid. And so um, there was a while where I was successfully using timeouts w- with my kids at home, but at the grocery store I didn't want to, so I was being a little bit more proactive, and I would just pick a different strategy. So one of my favorite strategies when my two kids, they would fight with each other at the grocery store, and it yeah. just drive me bonkers, yeah. and they just keep picking at each other. And so I took a little index card, um, drew three pictures on it. One was a picture of bread, one was a picture of a cereal box, and one was a picture of an apple, and they each got one. And uh, if they ever fought with each other at the grocery store, then I'd X out one of those pictures. And what the pictures represented was their ability to help me choose which apple we would get or which bread we would get or which cereal we would get. And so their fighting would quickly not lead to a timeout, but lead to losing the choice to help me pick some good food items. And uh, that was my strategy at the grocery store instead of using timeout. And at home, for those who don't know what we're talking about, but timeout could be make, well, do they go in their room and, and they have to be there by themselves for a while? Is that a timeout in the room with all their toys and television and whatever things they have to occupy themselves with? Or is it, what is it? Or do you sit in a chair? 
So typically when a, a behavioral psychologist would recommend a timeout, it would be a dull and boring place. So usually it wouldn't be the child's bedroom or at least said they've got all those things. Um, it might be the hallway. It might be a, you know, a part of the living room. I, I had two places in my house. Upstairs it was in the hallway and downstairs we had a pretty big living room area. So it's just like against a certain wall there. Um, usually it's in like a, a chair, but I honestly didn't use the chair. Um, and usually it's just for a few minutes with a timer set to make it very clear how long the timeout length is going to be. All right. So timeouts, it varies. I have one other, situ- you know, on the situation, the age of the child and everything. Um, so, Dr. Hub, what about it? I'm kind of going back in my own mind in a car situation. Now, that's changed because kids have things to occupy their time. But at one point right. I had like three car seats and they were in doing exactly what your boys did in the grocery store. He's touching me, he touched me, he looked at me, he, you know, whatever he did. And I'm trying to drive the car at the same time, sort of just tuning out. How do you handle that? Because, you know, parents are in the car a lot with their kids, taking the older kid to the, you know, whatever the, the activities they have to do, and then you've got the younger kids in the car, and there's usually a lot going on and a lot that you don't want to be going on. So how do you, what you know, are there things that we buy into as myths associated with that kind of behavior or what do we, you know, what do we do? Oh, I don't know if I can think of any myths are coming to mind, but uh, I think what you touched on was, and this might be one area where the parents right now have it a little easier because they've got so many different ways they can distract kids in the car. Uh, And so um, whenever kids are acting up, I'm always trying to think proactively of how can I distract them with different things. And like even at like a restaurant, they've done research to show if there's like a, uh, you know, a a piece of paper with uh, some crayons at a table for kids, then they act up less uh, just because they have that thing to do. Uh, it's just kind of fun research. And so and that would apply to the car too. My kids used to fight in the car and uh, what I would, when they would start fighting, I would say, Oh my gosh, look at that. And they'd be like, what? And then I'd have to like make up some awesome thing. I'd be like, those clouds, they look so fluffy. And I would just try to use distractions like that. But then they would uh, start to turn it around on me once my son, I started to get mad at him because he was walking out into the street. And I'm like, hey, you shouldn't walk out into the street. And he goes, oh, my gosh, look at that. It's a goose. <laughs> so uh, they would turn it around on me, too. Yeah, well, so you have to be creative, right? Because you're yeah, just as creative as you are, and, and yeah. even more so, sometimes, right? Yeah, and the yeah. thing is, there, there's usually not just one right answer. There's uh, you know multiple things you can do. So hopefully, in the book, we we point people to so many different resources. They got a lot of options to choose from. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I I'll uh, mention the book again: Great Myths of Child Development, which you can buy what online bookstores everywhere. But yeah, there's there's just so much that you cover in the book, chapter by chapter. Um, I'm just pick, we're just picking out some of the highlights. But breastfeeding older children, um, good or bad? Is that uh, do, do they say that's a good thing to do or not a good thing to do? And what are we talking about? We say older children. How old? Right. Well, yeah, that's a good question. So, um, first of all, I mentioned earlier, breastfeeding is definitely a good thing to do. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends doing it for about a year. Uh, World Health Organization, which considers more countries, uh, recommends it for uh, about two years uh, or more. Um, but when I say older children, I'm talking about breastfeeding as part of attachment parenting, and they will recommend breastfeeding 
for the purposes of attachment for three years, four years, five years, six years, I've even seen seven years, uh, seven-year-old breastfeeding for the purpose of building attachment. And they're doing this without any research to show uh, that breastfeeding for so long strengthens attachment. Uh, and um, so uh, we, we don't review research saying it's harmful, although, you know, I think once kids are, are – uh, Eating a chicken wing and showing up to soccer practice, it might be time to think about a new, a new way a to new get strategy them some food. for food. Yeah, <laughs> yeah when you uh, when you're talking about attachment, I think maybe we should define that a little bit. Attachment um, psychology or yeah, attachment, attachment theory, yeah. meaning what? I mean, you don't want and certain. I mean, because at seven you want your child, or at six or five or even four, to be able to. Detached to be able to go to preschool or to kindergarten or first right. grade or second grade and not be with you all the time. So it would seem to me that kind of attachment would not be positive, but it would be negative. Yeah, and uh, there's really not uh, the problem with attachment parenting. It's it's taken off as a trend. There are celebrities that do it, like uh, Mayam Bialik from Big Bang Theory, Alanis Morissette are a couple that are promoting this attachment parenting. Uh, Dr. William Sears, that's a big part of what he has in his baby book. And um, they're promoting it, but there's really no research on attachment parenting. And most of the recommendations are implausible in terms of promoting attachment and or, as we've talked about, in some cases can be dangerous. Yeah. And don't we have to talk about all of this in the context of culture? I mean, maybe it's appropriate in some developing countries to right. breastfeed your baby for three or four years because that's, right. that's what you have available, but maybe not so much here where we do have good food and nutrition. I mean, I here again, I have to give my own stories, but I, I was a big breastfeeder, and at that time in the 80s, they didn't, they, the American Board of Pediatrics, said, oh, you can't breastfeed your baby beyond six months, and if you do, you have to give them supplementary food, which I didn't do. Right. And I just you kind of, you know, mothers do have a certain intuition about that or a gut feeling about when it's time to kind of wean the baby or not. So my one of them, I nursed nine months and never gave him any food or anything else or any water. And my mother and my mother-in-law, you know, you're starving him, you better. <laughs> I said, well, the, the doctor, if he's gaining weight and he's healthy, he's fine. And then, as you said, at, at nine months, he wanted a corn on the cob and a steak, so that was the end of the nursing. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was kind of... Well, I think you're right, and I have used the uh, American Academy of Pediatrics a few times as, uh, you know, somebody we should listen to, but you're right, they have changed uh, their opinion as new research comes out over the years, uh, so they're moving more and more towards having a bigger research base to choose from. Uh, and so I think you're also right that parents have a lot of good intuition uh, and and typically will do the right thing. Um, and sometimes it's just when they overthink it, uh, they they might move in the wrong direction. Um, but uh, sometimes intuition can point us in the wrong direction too. So, as a as a father and also as a an expert, a psychologist, what's the one myth maybe that has surprised you in all your research that you kind of maybe bought into or bought into with your own kids, and now, given the research over the past few years, that it, you know the particular way of of uh, raising a child is is, a, is not a good thing to do. I mean, what, any were there any sub major surprises for you? Um, well, some surprises, not necessarily about raising a child. Well, one thing I uncovered while working on this book that I did not know 
was that a woman can get pregnant while she's already pregnant. So she could be about a month pregnant and then actually get pregnant again and be carrying two babies that were conceived on different days. So that was now, shocking news to me. But, see, I knew that. Now, I'm not sure where, how or why I knew that. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it was <laughs> because I read where, I, yeah, I, I had, you, you can't. Must, I, yeah, I you must have read a news story. That's kind of how it came about to me. Yeah, that's wild, but it's true. <laughs> yeah. um, Here's another one I thought uh, that I learned along the way. I always thought identical twins had identical genes, uh, and it, as it turns out, they're very, 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 very nearly identical, uh, but because of the way cells duplicate themselves, when uh, a, a zygote is developing into an embryo, uh, they're actually identical twins have slightly different variations in their genetic makeup. All right, so the, how does that play out in terms of the babies or the kids? Uh, I mean, if it's so, so close, I mean, are you saying like they're identical, 99.9% identical or less Probably than like 99.99999, but yeah. not 100%. <laughs> Uh, like I've always assumed. And so, you know, sometimes even with identical twins, they, there might be some difference in their traits or how they look or how they act. And um, that actually could be due to slight different genetic differences between them. There, There's actually a news case of some identical twins where one is a boy and one is a girl. So this that would be like one, one uh, obvious example. Identical twin? How can you be identical if one is a boy and one is a girl. I mean, just anatomically, you're different. <laughs> because, so they started off with the the same genetic code, but then because when the cells started duplicating, a mutation occurred, which uh, turned one of them into the opposite sex of what they were going to be in the first place. Which kind of gets into our other myth of all boys are XY and all girls are XX. Okay, explain that, because I thought that all boys were XY and all girls were XX. Not true. Okay, so that's not true. All right. Uh, So that is the case most of the time, uh, but there are other possibilities. So sometimes um, you can have a girl who's XX, I mean, a girl who's XY, or you can have a boy who's XX. Or some people have more than two sex chromosomes, and so you can be XXY or XXYY, um, or you can have just one sex chromosome and just be X and then a, and then a blank. Uh, and there, these are all different variations. There's probably hundreds of different possibilities. Well, that would say a lot, perhaps, about gender identity. Uh, maybe that would have a lot to do about kids who identify as being transgendered, having something to do with the XXXY, um, you know, just the biological imperative that you've described here. Yeah, and that's just the obvious example of with the sex chromosomes, but we have a whole bunch of other uh, chromosomes, and they also influence uh, our our expression of our sexuality in different ways, too, and uh, shape the brain and how the brain works. And uh, so there's a lot of different uh, genetic explanations for how people might feel in terms of their sexuality and their gender identity. Well, that's fascinating research. So, I mean, I know you have a lot of, uh, in the book, obviously, you, you direct people to where they can get more information. So where would you get more information about that? I mean, that's a very hot topic today. 
Yeah, um, so our book, I wish I could remember, uh, I, I relied heavily on another book. Uh, I think it was called like The Myth of XXXY or something, but I mentioned it in the book. I can't remember the exact title, but uh, I referenced it in there, and I, I learned a lot from reading a book on this topic. Right. Well, the, you know, everyone will just have to buy the book so that you can get well, this. Well, I'm trying to look around my office to see. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. It. They can go online, <laughs> Great Myths of Child Development, if you want to find out. Maybe we have time. We've got a couple more minutes. I don't know if we can cover this, but the only child thing, because I had a big conversation about that. I've had a lot of conversations, and especially with younger people, maybe thinking about, oh, I just want to have one child, but it's not good for the child, and, and you know, they're going to be, there'll be a lot of psychological problems if they're only children true, not true? Is that a myth? Well, I'm an only child, but I've always heard this myth, so I kind of took issue with it. And uh, since I was so biased, I decided it'd probably be better to have my co-author, who has siblings, to uh, write that myth, uh, write that chapter. And um, so he was able to find a lot of research on it. And uh, luckily for me, it turns out that only children are, are not any more selfish, spoiled, or lonely when you compare them to kids with siblings. Now, that's not to say that holds up for every individual case, but on average, an only child uh, isn't any different than a child with siblings on those traits. Okay, so there has to be a lot of other factors involved in the family, right? Not just the fact that you're an only child. You can have parents who spoil two children or uh, one child, or maybe sometimes one child, the only children don't get enough attention. Um, so there are a lot of different factors, I guess. So I guess that is kind of a myth. Well, yeah, there's certainly um, factors, but whether or not you have siblings doesn't really turn out to be a very powerful one. Well, I, 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 um, I just got an IM from my voice engineer, and he said he's an only child, too, and he's, <laughs> he shares everything. And I, my boyfriend, my partner of 25 years, he's an only child, too. He shares everything. I had two siblings. I hide everything because I want to make sure that I get it. And I am don't share everything, so we dispelled that myth. Anyway, we have to say goodbye. It was really, um, I really enjoyed talking to you today. Lots more in your book, Great Myths of Child Development, Dr. Stephen Hupp. And just give us a website we can go to as well as uh, online. Sure. Well, the book's available on Amazon, uh, but you can also see it on my website. It's stephenhupp.com, Stephen with a P-H, and Hupp is H-U-P-P. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Dr. Hupp. And uh, hopefully we'll have you on again soon. Oh, you pick any of these topics, I'd love to come back and talk yeah, about we'll them. Yeah, we'll go with it. All right, we're going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. 
If you are interested in real estate in America's largest city or anywhere, be sure to listen for Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Although our focus is on Manhattan and other real estate markets in and around New York City, we'll have plenty of information that will help you successfully buy, sell, and close a transaction no matter where you are in the world. Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco can be heard every Tuesday at 9 a.m. in New York, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to the Catherine Zop. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, Joining me this morning is Chris Boucher. Chris is Vice President of Product Development at Canavest. And is here to give us a little, he's going to give us a Cannabis 101 and bring us up to speed, which is good because I need to be brought up to speed on the issues of the legalization of marijuana. He's also going to talk to us about a few of the benefits that legal cannabis and hemp products can have on our physical and mental health. And he truly is the expert. Um, He is, as I said, vice president of product development at Cannabis Corporation, which is in San Diego, California and is actually one of the uh, American pioneers of the modern USA hemp industry, founder of the Hemp Industries Association in 1992. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Oh, it's great to be here, Catherine. Okay, Chris. I mean, this is a hot topic. I was just reading the New York Times, I think, yesterday. I'm in uh, New York. Um, there was a big article about doing research on cannabis and, like, how is it really effective in terms of, like, medical marijuana and helping us to relieve pain. Or uh, So I have lots of questions, and I guess we have to start out with definitions, uh, and I'll stop talking. But what is – you have to tell us the difference. What's the difference between cannabis, marijuana, hemp, uh, medical marijuana, um, recreational marijuana. I mean, there are all those kind of, I think, definitions we got to get straight before we continue with our Cannabis 101. Yeah, you know, I like to break it down pretty easy. It's all cannabis sativa, okay? And uh, pretty much the difference between hemp and marijuana, hemp is your non-psychoactive cannabis strain. Basically, it's like your non-alcoholic beer. It's got 0.3% THC can't get you high, where marijuana is like your alcoholic beer. It has up to 10 to 25% THC. Um, 
THC. The big difference between medical marijuana and mar- recreational marijuana is a lot of your medical marijuana is grown inside in controlled environments. It's tested. It's thoroughly um, experimented with in, in different uh, testing uh, modes, but it's, it's definitely a lot more safer, I would say, for people that are sick that are looking for alternatives. So what does medical marijuana do for us and why? And, and if it is it's a good thing, um, what's, why haven't we been, you know, what's been sort of, I guess, with the negative against marijuana? Where did that come from? I mean, I know it's a political issue. Maybe what's the history behind marijuana? We take all kinds of drugs that are much stronger, I think, and, uh, you know, painkillers and, and those kinds of drugs that are stronger than marijuana, but yet marijuana has this huge taboo associated with it, especially either even medical and recreational. Oh, yeah. I mean, you have, I mean, it's a political football with spikes in it. I mean, we've had 80, 90 years of misinformation and just really bad, bad science. I mean, if you go back to where marijuana was outlawed back in the 1920s and 30s, you've got to understand every front page headline across America was about minorities and blacks smoking marijuana and murdering white people. William Randolph Hearst and Harry Asplinger. Harry Asplinger was the head of Narcotics Bureau of the United States for over 45 years. William Randolph Hearst owned over 100 newspapers. So over a course of maybe 15, 20 years, they ran really bad, racist, outlandish, sensational journalism. That's where yellow journalism came from. And a lot of people were really scared. I mean, they called it Satan's weed. It made you murder people. So you had a really fearful America. They outlawed it. And then they put in a lot of bad science, reefer madness, and now we're finding out that the cannabis plant, you know, has medical benefits. And considering it was the number one prescribed medicine during the 1800s, so um, you know, it, it's a long story. It's very complicated, but it's right now basically coming out of the shadows, and we're seeing just all the positive benefits. Yeah. Well, as I understand it, and in what you've talked about. Uh, as you said, in the 1800s, all this began to happen, or at post-1800s. But before the 1800s, we used uh, cannabis hemp uh, to pay our taxes in America for over 200 years. Or you could even be jailed in America for not growing cannabis during periods of shortage. These are all interesting, fun facts. Let's talk about some of those, because I had no idea. I like to say hemp is more American than apple pie. <laughs> you know, you got to understand Betsy Ross's flag was made out of hemp. We used to salute to a hemp flag made in America. Now we salute to a nylon flag made in China. <laughs> um, but what, what I really like to look at and let people know, without hemp, we would have never discovered America. Every ship, every boat that crossed the ocean for thousands of years had to have a hemp canvas sail. The word canvas actually means cannabis marijuana. And the reason being is most cotton sails or jute or flax couldn't really survive the ocean salt water. So a hemp sail basically powered the, the whole commerce and the discovery of the new world. So that's why when we first discovered America, or we you know, landed here, I won't say discovered, but uh, it was mandatory that you grew hemp because we needed uh, you know, power to move the ships and move the commerce. So uh, for 100 years, you can almost pay your taxes with hemp fiber. It was, it was vital to our economy and survival. All right, so and then here I'm going to give another one of these statistics. In 1938, hemp was announced as America's first 
billion-dollar crop, but it immediately disappeared from the radar thanks to the efforts of the petroleum industry. So here come the politics yes, that, and that the money. The and, of, yeah. Yeah, that was the front page of Popular Mechanics. You know, I mean, that, that was a, you know, quite a, uh, a big magazine back then. And I like to say, can you imagine if it was worth a billion dollars in 1937? Can you imagine if we never outlawed it, what it would be worth today? So, I mean, we've got some catching up to do. And, yes, the petroleum industry did come into effect. You have to understand America at that time was converting from agricultural carbohydrate-based economy, and we were switching over to petroleum synthetic-based economy, you know, whether it was your, your paints, your varnishes, your fuel, your plastics, your textiles, your nylon. So it was a huge switchover, and, uh, you know, um, at the same time, it was demonized. You know, as they were switching over, they were, you know, really using racial tactics to just really snuff it out. So, okay, let's fast forward to now, 2015. You are the Vice President of Product Development at Canavest. Talk to us about Canavest. What kind of products are you developing? How can we use them? Uh, I mean, marijuana is legalized in how many states now? Um, it's uh, Medical marijuana, I believe, is in about 23 states, and each state has a different set of laws. Some of them are a little more loose. Some of them are a little more, you know, stricter. Um, what we do at Canavest is we farm about 3,000 acres of uh, industrial hemp, and that's the no-high. They're all certified 0.3% THC. And what we do is we extract the hemp CBD oil, which is the non-psychoactive oil. And I don't know if you ever saw Charlotte's Web, the uh, CNN special with Dr. Sanjay Gupta. The little girl had she had 100 seizures a day, and uh, the doctor gave her a little bit of hemp uh, CBD oil, and it basically stopped uh, her seizures from 100 a day to maybe two or three a week. So we extract that oil out, and we put it in um, tinctures, capsules, pills, you name it. I mean, I just got back from Kentucky this morning. Um, we were in Kentucky actually uh, uh, growing some hemp there with the University of Kentucky, Murray State. Um, there's probably going to be a couple thousand acres this year of non-psychoactive industrial hemp in Kentucky. Matter of fact, Mitch McConnell was the most powerful guy probably in the country these days. Uh, he's a big proponent of it, and uh, he's even said that, uh, you know, by Americans growing hemp here, we could create 10 times more jobs than the XL pipeline. Very practical. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and my experience with it, yeah, uh, well, I don't know, late 80s, early 90s, and unfortunately I had friends and family uh, you know, who had breast cancer, and many of the women that I knew, I mean, at the even at the end of their lives when they, you know, were enduring this, like, horrific chemotherapy, their doctors would, um, they couldn't exactly prescribe marijuana, but they would, you know, sort of lead them in the direction of where they could get it, and it was the only thing that relieved the, the pain, the, you know, the, I mean, it was amazing, I mean, it, uh, compared to all the other drugs. And uh, I, I knew several women, and this is, we're talking, what, 20, 25 years ago? Yeah, um, you know, it's hard for us to make claims, but if, if anyone wants to go and do their own discovery and their own research, if you go to PubMed.gov, there is just incredible science and research with breast cancer, with tumors, and how the different cannabinoids that are in marijuana, and a lot of people... I uh, need to understand, you just don't smoke it. People take pills, capsules, oils, um, uh, transdermal patches, um, et cetera, et cetera. So 
it's just not that, you know, that image of, you know, a tie-dye person smoking a big joint. It's that, that's not it anymore. It's a lot more um, medical delivery methods for people taking it. And uh, what we're trying to do and the whole country's trying to do right now is to remove cannabis, marijuana, hemp from Schedule 1. Right now, the U.S. government has it in Schedule 1. What is Schedule 1? Basically, it's a category that has no human use whatsoever. It's basically considered the same as heroin, ecstasy, LSD, and acid. This is ridiculous, okay? So there's a new bill right now in, in, in the Senate. Um, it's uh, Senator Gillibrand and uh, Senator uh, Cory Booker. I hope I'm pronouncing their names correctly. And they're trying to remove hemp and cannabis um, from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2 to get it in the same category as cocaine and methamphetamine, which actually has medical use. And so once it goes into medical use, doctors and universities and researchers are going to be able to actually do the proper science and investment. Wall Street, the bankers, they'll be able to get involved. But right now, it's, it, it's, it's got an iron, you know, uh, handcuffs on it because uh, it's in Schedule 1. And so it, it, it's, it's ridiculous, and we're all trying to move this forward and, and change the law. Yeah, well, Senator Gillibrand is from the great state of New York, which is where I am from here, New York City. But uh, what about the pharmaceutical companies? What is their role in all of this? Well, what they've been trying to do is they've been trying to take the individual chemicals. There's over, I think, 80 different chemicals that are in cannabis that are called cannabinoids, and they're trying to make them, you know, synthesize the, the actual chemical. But we found out through some of the research out there, synthetic chemicals don't work as well as the whole plant. And that's science and that's the truth. But if you can isolate that chemical and you own that compound, you know, you can have a billion-dollar product. So, you know, there is this tug-of-war going on, but I believe the momentum and the people involved in the medical marijuana, the cannabis space, probably aren't going to let that happen, you know, this quickly. So uh, a lot going on in that space. So once that law is 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 passed and you've you've you know changed the the law in terms of um, the category that cannabis is in, what do you see is happening? What's going to happen after if it winds up that they were a, they're able to do that or that happens? Then what happens? I guess then. Well, how does, we, we, yeah, we already yeah. know you have Wall Street. All the bankers, they're just sitting there, ready to jump in with their money. They want investment. They want to build these companies. You know, they want to get products to the market. And, of course, the research is the foundation. And, like I said, it, it's, it's, they can't do it right now because of federal law of Schedule 1. I mean, Obama or even um, the Attorney General could actually, with the stroke of a pen, remove it from Schedule 1 if they wanted to. So you're going to see huge industry. As a matter of fact, there was one big, huge uh, Wall Street investor, Peter Thiel. He's the guy who initially put the money up for Facebook, PayPal. He just put up $50, $60 million to... Uh, a company out of Seattle. So you're seeing this money investment coming in, and it's going to be a huge multi-billion dollar industry. So how did you get involved in this? You're vice president of product development at Canavest, uh, Chris. When did you start? What, how, how did you start? How did you get involved in, in the, well, how did you become That's vice exactly. president? Yeah. <laughs> I walked into a store one day in 1990. I was in the textile industry making uh, clothing out of cotton, organic cotton, and a gentleman, I uh, walked into a store and he was signing a petition to legalize hemp. He asked, uh, I asked him, well, what's hemp? He wanted me to sign it. And uh, six, seven hours later, I left his store and uh, he gave me the entire history. He told me about popular mechanics, about all the, 
you know, the, the, the facts and the history of hemp here in America and the whole world. And I was determined to start a company made out of hemp clothing. So I started a company in 1991, making hemp hats, wallets, and bags. I started the HIA, the Hemp Industries Association, in 92. Um, then by 94, I was actually growing industrial hemp in California at the USDA Research Center. So I thought it would be legal within a couple of years from then, but it, you know, 20 years later, here I am. So, you know, it's been a long battle, but it's been interesting, and, and, and it's been a great life doing this and meeting all the different people and seeing the people get healed. You know, there's a lot of people that were sick. Some people didn't make it. Some people did. So um, there's some great benefits to it. And, uh, you know, we're seeing just right now, last week, there was a big report came out just with industrial hemp, you know, the shampoos and the lotions and stuff you buy at the natural product store. They even sell hemp at Walmart. Um it was a $680 million industry last year, and that's going to foreign farmers. You know, we need to grow it here so we can pay our farmers, create jobs in these rural communities, and build the infrastructure. And that's going to happen. It's just a matter of, again, removing it from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2. How did this guy convince you in eight hours that this was the way to go? <laughs> He, well, he wrote a book called The Emperor Wears No Clothes. His name was Jack Hera. He was the most famous author here, I'd say, in the modern century of, you know, hemp cannabis. And this book, The Emperor Wears No Clothes, basically is the foundation for the entire cannabis movement. And I don't care what anyone says. Without this book, he sold hundreds of thousands of copies of this book here in America. It was printed in, I think, five or six different languages. And it basically had all the historical facts and newspaper clippings and you name it. Even even he went to the Library of Congress and discovered Hemp for Victory, which is the government in 1942 made a movie encouraging farmers to grow hemp cannabis marijuana for the war effort. And so uh, they denied it for years, but he found it. So um, this really changed everyone's mind. They saw the historical facts right there, you know, in front of them. So no one could deny it. And I think that's what everyone was missing in this whole marijuana movement. They saw it as, you know, it's just, you know, a bunch of hippies out there trying to legalize it. But in fact, there were scientists, researchers, bankers, institutions, and corporations, you know, doing it. So it, it's been an amazing, amazing journey. Yeah, so there has to be a whole attitude switch, and I guess that's beginning to happen. Uh, you know, mainstream, when you're talking about bankers and businessmen and those and politicians getting on the bandwagon, so it begins to change people's attitudes, and they begin to understand exactly what all of this medical marijuana, recreational marijuana, hemp, what it is without kind of the blinders of this, I think, political whatever we've been fed since, what did you say, the 1800s, that it's a bad thing? smoked by bad people. Um, we have to change that, don't we? That kind of um, change attitude. Uh, yeah, it takes a little time to change. So we've, we've had that change coming. And we can all agree, you know, kids shouldn't be smoking dope. Kids shouldn't be smoking cigarettes, alcohol. You know, this is not for children, except if they're really sick, like in that CNN special. You know, young kids that are, are really sick might need cannabis at some point. The non-psychoactive, I mean, there's stuff that doesn't get you high that comes from the plant. So these chemicals are very valuable for the health and the well-being of our families and our children. But uh, I think it's education, educating our children in schools. I mean, all this stuff I've told you was removed from our history books. We don't teach our kids that Christopher Columbus or the Mayflower, the Pilgrims, they all came to America on hemp ships, hemp sails, hemp ropes. 
even to prevent the ships from sinking, they were lined with hemp fiber oakum. So um, I think it was critical that uh, we bring this back into the schools and teach the science and the truth, not the misinformation and the fear tactics, which really confuses people. And I, I think we've come in our society to that point where, you know, we're, we're logical enough to uh, make these decisions and know, you know, facts from fear. Um, I was in Amsterdam a couple of years ago, and I was on a a, a, a tram, and uh, there was a big sign about hemp and, and the Netherlands. And uh, was is there some history? I mean, you're talking about Europe and Christopher Columbus. Uh, um, w- w- Amsterdam were they a big producers of hemp? But I, I can't exactly remember what the the billboard was about. But it was kind of proclaiming all the the good stuff that comes from hemp. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, again, the word. Um... Uh, canvas is is a Dutch word that actually means cannabis. Um, if you go to Poland or um, Hungary, they say canopy, like a tent means cannabis. So every painting, Rembrandt, the Renaissance, they were all painted on marijuana fabric or can, cannabis fabric. So, um, you know, it's, it's just part of the European history. You know, the Ukraine, the Ukraine was a huge provider of hemp for centuries. The Chinese... Um, you know, the whole world grows hemp right now, the industrial hemp, the, the non-high, you know, Canada, Europe, uh, South Africa, uh, China, uh, Australia, I can name every country, except for the United States. But this year, Kentucky will be growing hemp. I know they're doing some experimental projects in Tennessee and in Colorado, but, uh, you know, we really need to kickstart this industry. And our company, uh, Cannabis, is one of the world leaders in industrial hemp. And uh, our specialty, like I said, was we work with the hemp CBD oil. And we're actually giving a bunch of our products away, the complimentary for free. I don't know if I can tell people to call and they can get a free sample and try it out themselves. Oh, that's interesting. We can always send some to me. <laughs> Start out with the radio Oh, you didn't get a sample. Right? Oh. <laughs> I'll I'll have yes absolutely I'll have my marketing person send you my address and you can send it to me and I'll try it out and my last question is what about investing I mean should we be looking I mean as investors I mean I I know you're not a financial advisor but uh, as I'm listening to you with all of these bankers getting on the bandwagon it must be or perhaps could be a really good investment for some of us. Yeah, we're a publicly traded company, so I, I can't really tell anyone no, to invest can't. in our company, but there's there's probably over maybe 60, 70 different companies that are in this space, you know, that are in the cannabis space. Some of them are great, some of them aren't, you know. It's just yeah. people do their due diligence and research, and you'd be amazed at uh, how many public companies now are starting up in the uh, whole cannabis space because, you know, eventually it could be up to a $50, $100 million industry within the next couple of years, and so we're pretty excited. Okay, well, Cannabis 101, everybody's going to have to do their own research. Chris Boucher, Vice President of Product Development at Cannavest. Thanks so much for enlightening us this morning. Really appreciate it. And uh, Yeah, I was wondering if I could have people call and they can get a free sample. If uh, they call 855-758-7223. Um, and we just want people to try it out. Call in, tell them you heard you know, your show, and uh, we'll just send complimentary samples. And you're getting a... FedEx package as soon as I get off the phone. (laughs) (laughs) All right, great. Thanks, Chris. Have a good one. Thank you. Thank you. you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. 
We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.